0: Good evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. My guess is you probably haven't heard those words from a pulpit before, but we're going to study 1 Corinthians chapter 7 together as we work our way through this book of the Bible, written by the Apostle Paul to the Church of God in Corinth, a very cosmopolitan city. It's a Greek city with a lot of influence, a lot of money, a lot of temptation. As we've previously discussed, Corinth was home to pagan temples of worship, temples of false gods, most principally the temple to the goddess Aphrodite, where thousands of temple prostitutes would come out into the streets to tempt passersby with their wiles. The city was full of fleshly temptation and indulgence. But not only that, Corinth was a city with philosophical prestige. They had renowned philosophers and rhetoricians. They had oratorical ability that was esteemed among the other cities. Their wisdom was prized. To be somebody special meant that you were full of Corinthian wisdom, worldly wisdom. And it's into this context that this young church was birthed. Paul. Having heard of the problems in this struggling church, pens this letter to address the clear problems that he sees. He addresses their pursuit of worldly wisdom, saying that instead of this worldly philosophy, we must, must preach Christ and him crucified. He addresses their prideful boasting and divisions and instead reminds them of the true unity that believers have, unity because of the cross and because of the Holy Spirit Paul addresses their toleration of serious sin, commanding them instead to cast out the leaven of unrepentant sin before it leavens the entire congregation. And he addresses the selfish attitudes that were motivating the church members to take each other to court, robbing and defrauding one another. And then, as we saw last time, Paul confronts the Corinthian believers about the misuse of their bodies. They had a deficient view of the body, why it was created, what is its purpose, and that deficient view had led them to engage in sexual immorality. Their bad theology led to bad ethics, and so Paul corrects their sinful behavior by reminding them of good theology. You are not your own. You were bought for a price, and so glorify God in your body. And then we get to tonight's text in chapter 7. In one sense, Paul is transitioning to something new, but in another sense, he's addressing the same kinds of issues. Tonight we'll see that having good theology doesn't lead neither to sexual indulgence nor to celibacy. Good theology about marriage and about the body will lead to the proper use of the body for the good of the spouse, the good of the marriage, and for the glory of God. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll read the first seven verses for tonight. Hear the word of our Lord. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one to one kind and one of another. Thus is God's word for us tonight. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. That you would speak, that you would build up, that you would correct, that you would encourage, that you would exhort, that you would rebuke. And that in all things you would be glorified and we would be sanctified. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Our text tonight begins with a transition in the body of this letter. Paul starts verse 1 with, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Paul had been addressing the problems that he saw in Corinth, but now he's transitioning in the next several chapters to addressing questions that the Corinthians themselves had posed to Paul in a letter that they had previously written to him. And throughout chapter 7, Paul will be addressing the topics of marriage and singleness And as we'll see, Paul's general exhortation for whatever their marital status is, is for believers to stay as you are. Stay as you are. Remain in the status that you were in at the time of your calling to Christ. If you were single, you can remain single. If you need to marry, then you can marry. If you're married, stay married. If you become a Christian and you're married to an unbeliever, stay married. You don't have to seek singleness. If you're widowed, stay single. Christianity is not limited by the marital status of any individual person. Stay as you are and bloom where you're planted. That's the general encouragement from Paul throughout this chapter, remain as you are. Now I know that there are different situations, some of which are very complex, that require careful consideration, and Paul will later address some of these difficult situations. But for the majority of us, Paul's message is clear. Remain as you are and be faithful where God has planted you. And so tonight in verses one through seven, we'll see Paul specifically addressing the married believers in the church. And the first point for us to notice in the text is this, the flaw in the Corinthians thinking. The flaw in the Corinthians thinking. Look again at verse one. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, this text has a notorious history of interpretation. Some have taken this passage, which admittedly has some difficult Greek in it, and have used it to go down the wrong path. The truth is, Satan has been very effective at twisting scriptural teaching regarding marriage and sexuality from the very beginning. We can see problems surrounding the Bible's teaching concerning marriage even before the close of the New Testament. Paul warns about and he condemns those who forbid marriage, First Timothy 4.3. There were some that were apparently arguing that the truly spiritual position is to be single, is to be unmarried. Further, later theologians and teachers have gone astray by interpreting passages like this one as saying that sex itself is a sin and it always comes from a sinful desire, so it's best to avoid it altogether. It's not good for a man to touch a woman, they might say, which is a euphemism for not engaging in physical intimacy, even with one's spouse. There's a strong stream in the early church of theologians arguing for intentional celibacy. They might argue that Jesus himself taught that in heaven the angels will neither marry nor be given in marriage, so neither should we. Shouldn't we seek to be angelic now and be on a higher plane of spiritual maturity? Shouldn't we do away with this fleshly appetite and all of the temptation that comes along with it? You can hear the arguments. Even some of the church's best theologians were not immune to this kind of logic. Augustine himself was wrong in his understanding of marriage and physical intimacy, He and others would teach that sex was only to be engaged in for the purpose of producing children, and even then it must be done in a way not to engage or entice sinful, lustful desires. Singleness was taught and promoted as the mature route, and de facto marriage is for the weaker ones, the ones that lack the self-control to govern their own urges, the ones that lacked maturity. Indeed, one church father named Origen went so far as to even emasculate himself, physically removing part of his flesh in order to battle against the sexual temptations he found within himself. And the Roman Catholic Church has promoted this kind of spiritual hierarchy for centuries. Marriage is fine and good, they say, but the really holy ones are the ones that take the vow of chastity, that become monks or nuns and devote themselves solely to service in the church. Now, as we'll see, Such thinking is contrary to Paul's logic in this chapter, and it actually undervalues the work and the gifting of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people. So back in Corinth, we see that Paul quotes the Corinthian believers' own logic back to them. Your translation probably has it in quotation marks. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. The Corinthian believers had gone off into the realm of teaching that sexual relations, even within marriage, was not good and perhaps even sinful. We don't know exactly how they got there. Perhaps they were using Jesus' own teaching about angels to get there. Perhaps they were saying, well, Jesus and Paul are both single, and so we want to be holy like them. Therefore, we should seek to be uh, single just like them. And even if we're married, we need to live as if we were single. We need to be celibate within our marriage. However they got there, they had swung the pendulum too far. Yes, Corinth was a place of perhaps unique sexual temptation. Yes, the believers were probably feeling all sorts of guilt about their past lives and indulgences before they were saved. But as as Christians are so prone to do, they have overcompensated and swung to the other side of the spectrum in an unhelpful way. Paul has just, in the previous chapter, finished blasting sexual sin. But if improper sexual sin, sexual indulgence is sin, it does not mean that it's automatically holy to abstain from all sexual relations. And that's what some of the Corinthian believers were doing. They were abstaining from all sexual relations, even within marriage. And that's the problem, which is our second point. Paul's warning about temptation. Paul's warning about temptation. Look at verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Paul here warns the Corinthian believers about the temptation towards sexual sin that results whenever a husband and a wife are not regularly coming together. We weren't made for celibacy within marriage. It's not good. Turn with me in your Bibles to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, we see creation of man and woman. And it shows us that mankind, that man and woman, did not come up with the idea of marriage and of intimacy. Marriage was not invented by men who could not control their urges, nor was it invented by women who were lonely. Marriage was God's idea, and marriage was a good idea. Genesis chapter 2, I'll start reading in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so here we have something significant in the text. We have, if you read closely, a jarring transition. During the creation week, God made everything that was made and declared all those things to be good. The birds, good. The fish, good. The plants, good. The trees, good. The stars and the moon, good. The land and the sky, good. But the first thing that God says is not good is Adam being alone. And so how does God make it evident that Adam's being alone is not good? Well, he does it by showing how everything else has a compliment, but Adam doesn't. Verse 19, now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So God is parading all of the animals in front of Adam for Adam to see that each one of those animals has a partner, has a complement. But Adam did not have a helper fit for him. He didn't have a complement. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from Adam, and from the rib... He made it to a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to or hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so God made from Adam a woman fit for him, designed for him, to be the appropriate complement for him, the helper for him. And therefore, a man shall leave his parents and cleave to his wife. And leaving and cleaving is the crucial concept here. And this concept is present before the fall, before the presence of sin in the world. That's significant. And so going back to 1 Corinthians, Paul is battling against the idea that a man and a woman should not cleave. They should not hold fast. They shouldn't come together. That's what the Corinthians were saying, or at least some of them. They should not hold fast. And Paul reminds them that to neglect the marriage bed is to open the marriage up to temptation. Satan always wants believers to neglect what God has made or to misuse it in some fashion. He will first seek to get you to act on your sexual desire outside of the marriage covenant. And if he can't get you to forsake your marriage covenant, he will use another ploy of injecting confusion about the covenant to get you to think that sex in marriage is a result of the fall and is something to be avoided if you are really holy. But Paul's teaching here reminds us that it was God who invented the physical intimacy. It was within the security of the marriage covenant that sex was meant to be enjoyed. And Paul's main point in verse 2 is that if we neglect the good gift that God has given we open ourselves up to temptation. So, Paul, what are we to do about it? Well, that's our third point. Paul's exhortation to faithfulness. Paul's exhortation to faithfulness. Look at verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Rather than abstaining from marital relations because of some misguided views of holiness and of celibacy, Paul urges that married couples should give themselves to one another. We could translate it literally as the husband and wife should give to their spouse the payment that is due them. Give them what is proper, what ought to be rendered. That's what the cleaving part of Adam and Eve coming together in Genesis 2 is about. God did not design two people to be married and yet to remain apart. That's detrimental to the marriage and detrimental to each other's spirituality. Rather, we are to understand that when we take our wedding vows, we are submitting ourselves to certain obligations. We are taking upon ourselves responsibilities that come with such a marital union. And one of those responsibilities is giving ourselves to one another. To withhold oneself physically from a spouse without just cause is to sin against your spouse. Each part of that sentence is important, so I'll say it again. To withhold yourself physically from your spouse without just cause is to sin against your spouse by needlessly exposing them to Satan's temptations toward sexual immorality. And I say without just cause because there are some situations in damaged relationships that require more delicate care and prudence. There are situations where sin produces damage in such a way that things can't play out as they should. I'll talk more about those situations in later sermons. But for now, we must recognize that God has, as it were, built into the marriage a pleasurable and spiritually edifying aspect of the physical union that serves to fortify the marriage against these temptations from Satan. And when we neglect our duties in this area, we are putting our spouse and ourselves in a position of vulnerability. Yes, Each spouse is responsible to withstand temptation when it comes, but we are each also responsible not to cast stumbling blocks in front of our spouse. And we do that when we unnecessarily withhold ourselves within the marital union. It's also significant for us to notice that Paul's emphasis here is not on selfishly demanding what you owe me. That's important. His emphasis is on the selfless concern of what I owe to you. The husband should give to his wife what is due to her. The wife should give to her husband what is due to him. And that perspective is crucial in marriage. Rather than demanding what you owe me, I need to seek to make sure that I am serving my spouse well with what is due to them. What is my job? What is my responsibility to give? It's always a delicate dance for pastors to talk with both clarity and also avoid crassness when addressing such topics of physical intimacy. And so I found a wonderful quote from an old pastor named Charles Bridges that I want to share with you. Bridges wrote a commentary on the book of Proverbs. It's wonderful. He's commenting on Proverbs 5, which is talking about a man drinking from his own cisterns. And Bridges says this. He says that tender... Well-regulated domestic affection is the best defense against the vagrant desires of unlawful passion. I love that. He he has a way with words that says so much in a very poetical way. Tender, well-regulated domestic affection is the best defense against the vagrant desires of unlawful passion. We are not to withhold ourselves, but to be tender. Enjoying a well regulated pattern of domestic affection so that neither we nor our spouses come under unnecessary temptation towards sexual immorality. But Paul doesn't just stop there. He doesn't say that we should be well regulated because of temptation. He also shifts the perspective of the Corinthians. Let's look at our fourth point Paul's perspective about authority. Paul's perspective about authority look at verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, Paul here is combating the Corinthian misunderstanding of bodily autonomy. It sounds downright modern. My body, my choice doesn't seem to fit with what Paul is saying here. In this verse, Paul is giving further rationale for the commands that he gives concerning marriage. To unnecessarily withhold yourself from your spouse demonstrates a faulty understanding of your own authority. He's already broached the subject at the end of the last chapter when he said, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Saying you are not sovereign over your own bodies. You are not the Lord of your own making. You're not able to choose to use your bodies in any way that you please. Rather, believers have been bought by Christ and are now to use our bodies in a way that glorifies the Lord, which in marriage means that we lovingly give ourselves to our spouse. We seek to love them, seek to honor them, in part because your spouse has a legitimate claim of authority over you and you over them. One commentator says it this way, regarding Paul's reframing of authority and possession within marriage. The implication of Paul's logic is that in the mutuality of sexual relations, the body of one is the free possession of the other. But this too needs to be heard in light of what is said next. The emphasis is not on possessing the body of the other. Rather, in marriage, I do not have the authority over my own body to do with it as I please. Therefore, I cannot deprive one another And it's with this emphasis on the full mutuality of sexuality within marriage that Paul puts sexual relations within the Christian marriage on a much higher ground than one finds in most cultures, where sex is often viewed as the husband's privilege and the wife's obligation. For Paul, the marriage bed is both uniting, that is, the two become one, and it's also an affirmation that the two belong to one another in total mutuality. It means that what Paul is saying is countercultural, both in the Greek culture in Corinth and in American culture today. Sex within marriage is not ultimately for the physical pleasure of one person or the other. Rather, marital relations are the God-glorifying act of mutual submission and self-service, self-self-selfless service, where both seek to outdo one another in showing honor and love and where the marriage union is affirmed and is strengthened. And this understanding of the marital union undergirds the logic of Paul's next point in verses 5 and 6. Look at verses 5 and 6 again, and we'll see Paul's concession. Paul's concession to the norm. Verse 5. Paul says, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come back together again so that satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control paul's understanding of the marriage union is one that is to be a regular consistent marriage in its physical expression you can hear it in the verse do not deprive one another or we could translate it in the ongoing present stop depriving one another except perhaps by agreement for a short time for the purposes of prayer but then quickly come back together. You hear it in the verse, the normal pattern is regularly coming together physically. Paul concedes that there may be seasons in the marriage where it might be prudent to abstain from sexual relations, but those seasons ought to be the exception from the norm. It's not normal nor healthy for a married couple to spend extended seasons physically apart. It's dangerous and it brings with it special temptations from Satan. It's worth noting here that the verb that Paul uses at the beginning of verse 5, stop depriving, is the same verb that he uses in chapter 6 verse 7, where Paul tells them to stop robbing and defrauding one another and taking each other to court. The same is true here. The Corinthians, refusing to go to bed with their spouse, were robbing their spouse of what was due them. And by doing so, they were putting themselves and their spouse in undue temptation. To do so is a violation of the seventh commandment. The commandment prohibiting adultery also implies that we would do everything within our power to protect the sanctity and purity of marriage, especially our own. And to unnecessarily withhold oneself for an extended period of time is to unnecessarily endanger your spouse and your marriage. And so Paul says in verse 6, I say this as a concession, not a command, that is Paul's encouragement about breaking from the normal pattern of physical intimacy for an agreed-upon period of time for prayer is a matter of prudence, a matter of wisdom. It's not law, and that's an important distinction. And it does belong to the category of prudence and not law, because it belongs to the category of giftings and not command. And that's our final point, Paul's recognition of giftings. Paul's recognition of giftings. Let's look at verse 7. Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Paul here is introducing the idea of the charismata, or the spiritual gifts, and the category of giftings within the area of marriage and singleness is an important area that we'll spend more time studying in the next few sermons. What he's saying here is a reflection upon his current status. His preference would be that everyone would be like he is, single, and thus able to focus exclusively on kingdom service without the encumbrance of the concerns that come when one is married. But unlike those in Corinth that were proclaiming the, superiorness, the superiority of singleness over and against marriage, Paul here reframes the whole discussion in terms of giftings, giftings from God. If indeed it is a spiritual gift from God to be single, and it is also a gift from God to be married, then nobody should lead us astray to think that singleness or marriage is inherently better one or the other. Both are gifts, and both are from God. It's not inherently better to be single. It's not inherently better to be married. The Corinthians were flawed in their spirituality because they had a deficient view of God's Gifts. Marriage is a gift, and it comes with special privileges and obligations. And singleness is a gift from God that comes with special privileges and obligations. Being single, as we'll discuss in the coming weeks, is not deficient. It's not a brokenness. It's not of less value. Nor is married being married subspiritual. It's not merely for those that can't control their urges. Each of us has a gift from God, one of one kind and one of the other. Wherever God has you, God has called you to that. And so flourish where you are. Stay as you are is the general recommendation of this chapter. If you're married, don't seek to rid yourself of marriage. If you're single, you don't have to get married. You're free to, but you don't have to. That's because neither is better than the other. Both are a gift from God. And so that brings us to the end of this passage, and offers for us a moment of reflection. A few questions of ourselves. First question. For the married among us, am I being faithful to my spouse and my marital obligations? Am I being being faithful to my spouse and my marital obligations? Physical intimacy is certainly much more than a duty, but it is not less than that. And sometimes we need to be reminded of our duty for the good of the marriage and the good of our own spiritual condition second and a related question am i doing what i should be to honor and protect my marriage am i doing what i should be to honor and protect my marriage we're called to honor and to love our spouse to cherish them to love them Am I being diligent to love my neighbor as myself when I see my spouse as my closest neighbor? Sometimes we can find it easier to go out and to demonstrate our love for the neighbor across the street or the neighbor at work than rather first loving the one that is closest to me. Don't coast in your marriage. Don't give in to the temptation to drift and to grow cold or to retaliate by withholding yourself and withdrawing physically or emotionally. Or spiritually within the marriage? And for the singles, are you doing what you can to promote the sanctity and goodness of marriage? That means not indulging yourself in sexual immorality of any kind. And seeking the good of the marriages of those people around you. I'll speak more of that in coming weeks, so I won't linger there. But for all of us, we probably recognize that we fall short in many of these areas. We can be quick to hold a grudge, quick to withhold ourselves from our spouse, guilty of letting our eyes wander, to be discontent with the spouse and the marriage that I've been given, to be discontent with my situation as a single person, to covet what my neighbor has, to covet the marriage that someone else has. We're all guilty of withholding from our spouse what is due to them, not honoring the marriage bed as is proper. But the good news of God is that we have a way to be forgiven. Even though we were unfaithful, Christ has been faithful. Even though we are the sinful spouse, we are the gomer that goes back to the fields of this world, we have a faithful Hosea who has come out and redeemed us out of slavery to sexual sin. Christ has been perfectly loyal. He has sought out the good of his spouse. He has not withheld his body from her. I wish we were taking the Lord's Supper. His body he gives for his bride. He's laid down his life for the good of the church. He became nothing, even to the point of a servant, even to the the point of death on a cross. And by his being made low, his bride has been bought out of bondage and slavery to sexual sin. His bride has been made perfect. This is the gospel. Believers, be refreshed by it. Rejoice in it. Live in it. How you have been forgiven of so much selfishness and instead treated as though you were perfect and spotless. What a kind and gracious husband we have. What a patient and tender bridegroom. Let his love and his sacrifice for you motivate you towards even greater love and service to your own spouse. And if you're single, Let Christ's devotion to you propel you forward in your devotion to Him. Both singleness and marriage proclaim the gospel. Marriage proclaims the intimacy found in the gospel, picturing the union between Christ and His bride. And singleness proclaims the sufficiency of the gospel message itself. Union with Christ is enough for life and godliness. Christ is sufficient. For your satisfaction and joy. But for those who are outside of Christ, then hear in Paul's text a warning against your own selfishness. You have sought to fulfill your desires rather than seeking to first serve others. You have bowed at the idol of self rather than laying down your own life for others. And your sin is not merely against another man or another woman, not merely against your spouse. Your sin is ultimately a violation of God's holy law and is an affront to His holy character. Apart from faith in Christ, you stand condemned by His law. You're liable to judgment, to punishment, eternal punishment in hell. Don't let that be your fate. Repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and turn to the Savior who can save you from the guilt of your sin and from the life of misery that is to come. Christ's offer stands for any to take. Repent, believe, trust, and you too can be made part of Christ's bride and forever experience the love of our faithful bridegroom. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we confess that we are too often selfish. We are discontented. We seek our own desires and not the good of others around us, and we pray that you would forgive us, that you would remind us of the sacrifice of Christ, that you would make us into faithful men and women, faithful husbands and wives, faithful servants in your kingdom. Lord, help us to flourish where we are planted, to serve well where we've been called.